Now, I'm pleased to introduce our speaker. Michael Bronski has been active in the gay liberation movement since 1969. Over the past 50 years, he has been a writer, journalist, editor, publisher, organizer, theorist, and independent scholar. His writing has appeared in publications including the Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, Fortune, The Advocate, and Out. He is the author of numerous books, including A Queer History of the United States, which won the, two, which won the 2011 Lambda Literary Award for Best Nonfiction, as well as the American Library Association, Stonewall, Israel Fishman Award for Best Nonfiction. Today, June 11th, is the official publication date of his latest work, A Queer History of the United States for Young People. He is a recipient of the Bill Whitehead Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Publishing Triangle, joining such past recipients as Audre Lorde, Adrian Rich, Martin Duberman, Samuel R. Delaney, Alison Bechdel, and Jonathan Ned Katz. He is professor of the practice in activism and media and the studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard University. Michael is here today to take us to late June of 1969, a moment in history almost exactly 50 years ago that gripped the imagination of the nation, crossing racial, gender, political, and social divides. He will explain why the commonly told story of Stonewall is the least interesting thing about it. Please join me in welcoming Michael Brownski. We did a sound check. Is the sound oh, is this okay for sound? I, I guess. Uh, thank you all for coming out on a miserable rainy day. Um, so I, I want to actually propose a sort of uh, counter history to what all the newspapers and magazines are putting out about Stonewall right now. Um, so we, we use the word Stonewall all the time. It's become an icon, a slogan, a catchphrase. In fact, I just watched it. I, I was watching Riverdale, the, show, the update of the Archie comic show, and they used it as sort of a punchline for a joke the other night. You know, it's even become a commercial brand. I was in Central Square in Cambridge. I was in Target, who had, a, when you walk in, an entire display of, of gay pride material, which I thought was like great and horrifying at the same time. Um, but everybody, well, at least, Queer people and people who read the paper knows what knows what Stonewall means, right? It's a quick and easy signifier for gay rights, and everybody knows mostly, sort of. Although there's lots of dispute what actually happened that night. And for anybody who doesn't know, I have a a quick run through. Let me see if I can make this. Yes. Uh, Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village was a gay bar, mostly mostly for white men, although there were some people of color and some drag queens who we might now call trans, tra transgender folk who went there. Uh, it was mafia-owned, and it was a popular bar with its crowds, and Christopher Street was one of the busiest streets in Greenwich Village, which was the center of a gay, gay neighborhood. Right? Uh, Sorry, there's a, not a slide there. Um, so in the, in the early mornings of Saturday, June 28th, the New York City police raided the bar. This was not uh, this was not unexceptional. Gay bars and lesbian bars are raided all the time. Often it was a shakedown for protection money or a routine harassment of, for gay men and lesbians under the law. So in New York City at the time, there was actually, or New York State actually, there was a law that forbade any bar or restaurant to serve a drink to a known homosexual. There were laws that forbade cross-dressing. Uh, there were also laws aimed at bars 
and even people on the street that forbade homosexuals from congregating for immoral purposes, like, like looking for sex. Um, and actually sex itself was against the law. There are sodomy laws in the state. The raid on Stonewall was routine, probably even expected, but what was not expected was that the patrons of, of, of the bar who were going to be arrested would fight back. The raid erupted into a street fight and then a widespread incident involving more police and more and more protesters. Many of these were not people who were at the bar, but people on the, you have to realize that Greenwich Village in, the, in, in a hot night in June is sort of like the middle of Harvard Square, right in Harvard Square in, in a hot July night, right? It was just crowded with people milling around. You know, these are not, but they were all probably mostly queer, although not necessarily. So this happened on several more nights. Oh no. Uh, I actually used to break equipment up at Dartmouth when I used to use it at Tech. I'll try not to. Um, this happened on several more nights, and as word of the street fighting spread, and it really wasn't a riot in the sense people used riot at the time, although the term insurrection or uprising might be more accurate. Right, so these are some pictures of the, of the riot happening here. It certainly was raucous, and, it was, and historically, it was incredibly important, right? Stonewall was the breaking point where gay men, lesbians, drag queens, people of color, and people connected to them were not going to take it anymore. As a symbol for that moment, Stonewall was vitally important. And weeks after the Stonewall fighting, women and men formed the Gay Liberation Front, a radical group that was not dedicated in eight years about gay rights, as we know it today, right? Meaning legal equality, but rather to challenge sexual, gender, racial, and economic inequality that they saw as intrinsic to American society. It, it, was, it was the first group to do this and to include issues of anti-queer sentiments and discrimination with a long list of what was wrong with America. But there's also a much more compelling and interesting story here, I think, and this is the story that, that I wanted to fill in the background for. It's a story with a very long history, going back at least three decades before Stonewall, and which is mostly, really mostly ignored. This doesn't come up at all in any of the news coverage that I've read in the past couple of weeks. It's a longer history that challenges and changes, or history of changes, the resistance in the fabric of American life. So there's no doubt that Stonewall was important, but I think it's remembered actually for the wrong reasons. It was about gay people's lives and oppressions, but for many other things as well, and this is what's been forgotten. While it was, as, as street fights often are, a sudden, explosion, a, sudden, a sudden explosion of rage, it was also the logical conclusion of two decades of history, as well as maybe especially, right, the last five years before 1969 of national events, movements, and protests that surrounded it. So I think, you know, people say, oh, Stonewall happened, it's great. Um, but so will happen in a, in a, comp, in a both complicated and simple matrix of other things that were happening in those same years. Stonewall was inevitable, but for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with same-sex behavior, relationships, oppressions, or activities. So what I want to do now is look at quickly the decades before Stonewall and what the gay and lesbian community was doing, as well as what else was happening to show you this sort of long lead-up to what Stonewall looked like. And then I want to look at events across America that were happening at, at the same time as Stonewall happening. 
So I want to begin, I usually lecture to students, it's nice to see, I don't have to explain what World War II is to people in the room, that <laughs> I often do to 18 year olds. Um, so I want to begin talking a little bit about World War II and the enormous effects this had not only on all Americans, but on L LGBT Americans. So as it sound, odd as it sounds, World War II and what happened later was the beginning of the queer community and politics in the United States. And there are a lot of reasons why this happened. First. The war completely scrambled American sense of, sex and, of how sex and gender was imagined. After the war broke out, or after we entered the war on December 7th, 1941, the country mobilized. So this meant that entire populations of people, women and men, were dislocated from their regular lives, right? Women and men entered the armed forces. It meant that certain expectations that had existed for generations were changed, right? So these people who were men and women, who became soldiers or who worked for the, for the war in um, plants, met all kinds of new people. They met different ethnicities and races, people of different religious backgrounds. They actually discovered what America really was. And there were expectations like you would marry the girl or the boy next door, or that you would marry and live in the same neighborhood as your parents, or you would spend the rest of your life with people like yourself. The relationships that progressed, you know, this basic relationship that sort of progressed was you would date, you would get engaged, and then you'd get married and have children. This totally changed. So Pearl Harbor is, 1940, is December 1941. By 1945, the armed forces had enlisted 16 million U.S. residents. 10 million were drafted. Right? Most soldiers were unmarried white men. 35% of the Navy was teenagers. 700,000 were African-Americans soldiers, 350 were actually Mexican-American. By 1943, the Women Auxiliary Army Corps, the WACs, had enlisted 140,000 women. Waves had 100,000 women. And what this meant was that people would have spent their entire lives in small towns or small cities across the country. Uh, or, or even if you grew up in New York, you, know, you, would, you would never meet, like my father grew up in Brooklyn, but he actually met people from Iowa the first day that he was in the Navy. People who would have spent their whole lives in small towns are now placed in totally new settings with new people and new moralities and new hopes and fears. They had to deal with all kinds of new people, you know, many men from the Midwest who had never met anybody who was Jewish before. Uh, people in America, you know, pe people back then lived fairly limited because media was different than now. We, we didn't have Facebook then. Limited lives, they stayed where they were born or close to it and they lived their lives there. And even though the armed forces were segregated, right, actually black and white men and women did hang out together, right? Now, because the war effort included so many women, they were given really important jobs during the war. So for the first time, women were seen as integral to the war effort and seen as integral to the American effort to actually fight for democracy. But, I mean, women are always valued as wives and mothers, of course, right? But, but not in the way that they were being valued now. Women were part of the fight for America, obviously the, the famous poster. Yeah. But it also changed many other things as well. The idea that men should not be emotional in public was changed, right? It was now okay for a man to literally right, cry when his son was going off to war on the train. You know, uh, men in trenches who were literally seeing their best friend blown apart next to them were actually allowed to be emotional. In, in, I mean, men were always emotional, of course. Clearly, men always had feelings, and men may have cried at home, but you didn't cry in public, right? Uh, men turned to one another for support in a way that, the, in publicly, that they never had before. 
This is actually a great book by Alan Burby called Coming Out Under Fire, where he actually talks to lots of, of lesbian and gay men veterans about their experiences during World War II. Um, so, right, you know, so rather than waiting for the right girl or the right boy, um, that you know, we, we had this, this phenomenon of wartime, of, of wartime sort of romance. When people met, when he's on a three-day leave, he has to go back to the war three days later. They fall in love, they want to have sex, maybe they get married, maybe they don't get married. You know, maybe she gets pregnant and they're married, or maybe she gets pregnant and they're not married and he's killed two weeks later after he is, he is like deployed. So it changes the, it re-scrambles the entire notion of what, not what was acceptable, but what was actually going to really happen, right? It actually made it okay for a group of women in a restaurant to invite a single serviceman to their table to have drinks with them. I know, because my mother worked in New York during the war, and she said it was common. They would invite sailors over. And my mother was a good Catholic woman from Queens. She was not loose in any way. <laughs> it totally, totally changed the notion, right? It totally changed the notion of what was acceptable in public for affection, right? The famous time, you know, this is at the end of the war, right? And what happens in all these, you know, so what happens that is that all these men and women go into the war, the war effort, and their lives are changed, right? For some of these women and men, they change because they discover their sexuality during the war. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe they were homosexual, maybe they weren't, but they actually discovered new parts of themselves. Um, so much of the armed services, or young, you know, remember 35% of the Navy is teenagers when they go in. So much of the armed forces of young people are the brink of their lives. So in short, it's more complicated, but in short, many women and men come out to themselves, to others, and they have these realizations, right? They realize that they don't need to move back to their hometown in Iowa. Uh, they don't. They can li live lives away from their biological families, which they may not have thought of five, three years earlier. Uh, they can form their own communities. They can hang out with other people who, like them, are desire the same sex. So what happens after the war is that those who do come out move to cities where they can live their own lives. And often these cities are on the coasts, right, where the ships come in. So Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, New York, Boston, Seattle, Baltimore. And these become the gay and lesbian neighborhoods, like Greenwich Village in New York, um, actually the West End, sort of where we are now, the West End of, of Boston, the, the, that side of Beacon Hill. Well, I guess the other side of Beacon Hill, over there. Uh, North Beach, San Francisco, Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Right, and here, here are just two pictures. This is a picture of uh, both bars in North Beach, San Francisco in the 50s, right? You notice there's a banner in, outside of um, Mona's for Gladys Bensley, the famous cross-dressing blues singer from, um, from Harlem in the 30s, right? So these people, even though these people, people right now people think that the 50s was a time of sexual repression, which is kind of true, but actually not really true, but that's it. That's a whole other lecture. The reality, right, is that the 50s was actually obsessed with homosexuality, right? This begins in 1948 with the publication of Alfred Kinsey's Sexual Response of the Human Male. These are just a few of the statistics. Um, you, if you read through these quickly, you can see where they were sort of shocking to people. <laughs> so Kinsey's interested not in identity. None of the men he spoke to were actually identified as homosexual, it's certainly not gay, right? but he was interested in what people actually did sexually. And as you see, there's a lot of going on. Um, so this was a complete revelation 
to people, right? I mean, three years late, four years later, he actually publishes a human sexual response in the human female that has similar numbers about women and, and same-sex behavior. So even the publishing industry understood that there was a huge interest in, in this new, I don't even know what to call it, um, homosexuality, same-sex activity, uh, gay culture, homosexual culture, and relationships, right? So these are just two mass market paperbacks, um, both uh, two different covers for Gore Vidal's novel City and the Pillar, right? I mean, mass, you know, these, these books sold hundreds of thousands of copies. You know, and Vidal's book was seen as literary, it was criticized. The New York Times, he alleges, would, not, would, would actually not review it when it came out. Um, and even though the cover on the left sort of has a kind of a heterosexual implication, even though the man looks very unhappy, <laughs> it, it's not really heterosexual in the sense of happy, right? And the, you know, and these novels, and there are literally, literally, oh, hundreds and hundreds of these novels, right? Here are two novels: one by Vin Packer, which was the first lesbian pulp ever. And if you actually look at the, I hope I press the right button, right? Look at the top of it. They're always a surging novel of a twisted love. I forget what these say. A masterful story of a lonely search, right? So they're actually marketed, even though, I mean, they, they have an enormous readership for both gay people and, and not gay people. Also, there's a huge interest in pulp magazines. These are pulp novels, right? A huge interest in pulp magazines that focus on homosexuality, both for lesbianism and for um, male homosexuality, right? Here's a copy of Epic Men's magazine. This, the big story, or the second story is, why bullfighters be, become homosexual. Um, it, it's because they're actually seduced by the men who run the bullfighting schools. Uh, and here's a story about Liberace, who should sing Noel Coward's song, Mad About the Boy. So Liberace, I remember, was actually sued three different people for saying that he was homosexual, and he won every one of them, even though it was clear. <laughs> from his everything about him that he was, right? Um, and later died of AIDS, of course, right? So the 1950s, and you know, so we're looking at people come back from the war, the, you know, the war happened, people come back, they form the communities. There's actually a, a surge, I mean, a literal surge in the culture of, 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 um, of knowledge, of interest, of obsession, even with homosexuality at the time, right? And there, there are several factors, so I want to talk a little bit, there are several factors that have to be in place before political organizing can happen, right? One is that you need a concentration of people to organize. One is that you need a level of visibility. And one is that you need a cause that will not only convince people to organize, but that can actually be connected to other types of organizing now. So right now we have gay neighborhoods where lesbian gay men can see themselves as part of a community and, and more importantly, act as a community. We have visibility. I mean, not always positive, like, you know, these, these are not saying, really great, Liberace's gay. <laughs> um, but people can simply not ignore the fact that homosexuals exist and that same-sex desire exists, right? And the, the other really big point here is I, if all these servicemen and women came back from the war, they were thinking, we just, we just made democracy safe for the world, we just defeated Hitler, we defeated Japan, what? we defeated tyranny across the world and fascism, why, why are we not free? 
Right? This was the same question that African African American soldiers asked after World War well after the Civil War, after World War One, after World War Two. Um, in the 1950s, right, we see this this um, surging of LGBT political organizing happened at the beginning, which is, and some of you may know this, is at these called the homophile movement. Homophile meaning loving the same. Um, in Los Angeles, Harry Hay, who's a Communist Party member who actually leaves the party because they don't approve of homosexuality, forms what's called the Mattachine Society, which is mostly for men. Um, and to foster a sense of community. He, so Hay actually being a communist, actually, and using communist cultural theory, actually uh, sees homosexuals as a distinct cultural community, not just as a bunch of guys who like to have sex with each other, but they actually form a community, right? It's sort of basic and sort of um, anthropology, right? They publish a magazine that has a wide range of articles from how to fight for how to use the law to fight your arrest for having gay sex, probably in public, um, to homosexuals and religion, to how to form your own social club in your city. Right, so here's a, these are from 50, can I, what's the date on that? Oh, 59, right, so 59, so to, now, yeah, literally the revolt of the homosexual, right? So Stonewall is 10 years after this, is a full decade later. Right, it's called the Mattachine Society because the Mattachines, according to Hay, I think it's a little bit sloppy social history. The, the Mattachines were a group of French, a society of French bachelors in the Middle Ages who actually um, dressed in carnival times as the fool. And his thesis was that the fool was the only person who could speak the truth to the king. So we think of King Lear, right? The only person who keeps on saying, don't do it, is the fool, right? Um, so in his theory, right, in fact, it's the homosexuals who, because they were outside of society, could actually critique society. Right, so five years later, two women, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, start a group in San Francisco called Daughters of Belitis. It's called Daughters of Belitis because there's a book from the, I think, late 8th, 19th century called Songs of Belitis by... Uh, Pierre Luis, which is actually, he was heterosexual, but it was sort of uh, poems about lesbians. But all, most lesbians knew it, and Phyllis Martin, Del, Lyon, uh, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon actually thought that most lesbians knew it, so if they called it Daughters of Belitis, it would sound like Daughters of the American Revolution, <laughs> and it would be very, very proper, and nobody else would get it, except lesbians. Um, they actually started it because Harry Hay, although he said lesbians were included, didn't really want lesbians in uh, Mattachine. And later on, actually, uh, women in, in Daughters of Belitis School, DOB, later on they actually made Harry Hay an honorary uh, son of Belitis, which is SOB. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the focus of him was actually providing social spaces for lesbians, because actually, if you think about it, like lesbians and gay men have a shared oppression, but very different um, Concerns, right? Lesbians, for the most part, not concerned about actually getting arrested for having sex in a park. <laughs> They're much more arrested about having to keep their children from a previous marriage. Um, and the, and DOB, the the latter, which is, you know, so with, within about ten years, there are actually enough women involved with DOB that they're actually willing to put their own pictures on the cover of the latter. Also, interestingly, many of the early members of San Francisco were in biracial couples too. So in fact, the movement, while the Mattachine was mostly mostly white guys, DOB was not at all, actually. 
that maybe the difference between Los Angeles and San Francisco are maybe the, uh, different ways of socializing too, right? But but the lesbian, the the, the, the uh, magazine focused on social spaces, giving advice on a number of issues, including job discrimination, because lesbians were, were as discriminated against as women as they were as women who loved other women. Right, their magazine is called The Ladder. At the start of the LGBT movement in the United States, these groups are essentially reformist in nature, meaning that they're looking for ways for lesbians and gay men to fit into to society and as support groups. Incredib incredibly necessary, right, to actually go to a meeting and not worry about getting arrested in a bar. <laughs> you know, they're also precursors to 1969, the Stonewall and the Gay, the Gay Liberation Front. I want to get to that in a minute, right? There are other organized, there are other people organizing around issues um, in within within American culture, which is becoming stronger and stronger. Right? The um, NAACP is formed, I believe, in 1904 by W. B. Du Bois, right? And in 1942, uh, CORE is formed, the Congress of Racial Equality. In 1957, right? So this is simultaneous, right? With with DOB and with Madison. In 57, uh, student SCLC, um, student Christian Southern Confederate. Sorry, yes, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, 1960, uh, we actually see uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, right, which will overcome here. Um, at the same time as this is happening, right, we actually have Betty Friedan writes The Feminine Mystique in 1963, um, a, a very a monumentally important book that's actually fairly conservative now for our standards. Um, and these movements, right, much like the homophile movements, are looking to reform society, not completely change it. At the same time, right, we, we actually have cultural change going on. And these are cultural change, but these are more politically oriented, right? We have cultural change going on, and this begins to totally change during the early 60s. Um, so I think the 60s really begin, I, I, think, I think the 50s begin in 1947, when the word juvenile delinquent is actually coined. <laughs> Um, and ends in 1963 and 64 with two major events, right? The first one is November of 1963, which is the assassination of John Kennedy, right? Which actually uh, completely changes the tenor of politics in the country. Right? I mean, something that we're actually, I think, still with school shooting, you know, I mean, the, the amount of not, of course, Lincoln was assassinated, other people were assassinated, right? But, but this really sets us off for the 60s, right? Of total upheaval. You know, this Kennedy assassination is followed by the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, and many others. America was now officially, right, a violent political culture in which reformist change seems sort of superfluous. Right. And then something else happens just a few months after Kennedy that totally changes American culture when we're actually invaded again, this time by the Beatles and the British invasion, right? So the Beatles, you know, with their shaggy hair and their, their new sort of like gentle sexuality, uh, but sexy, their irreverent sense of humor, they, you know, the long hair is very effeminizing. Um, you know, they were the, obviously the idol of lots of teenage girls, right? I mean, sort of like Ricky Nelson was this five years before and now he was out. You know, Fabian was out, it was all the Beatles, it was all, it was all the British, you know, and, and certainly, the British styles, because they were Carnaby Street, because they were British, dovetailed very, very neatly with some of the American styles for gay men at the time. The longer hair, the looser, the tighter shirts, the looser pants. 
Um, so ideas about masculinity, about manhood, about gender and sexuality were completely changing in popular culture, right? They were pushing the, off, often from England, in, you know, sort of interestingly, right? England's in the vanguard of this. I mean, Elvis, you know, Elvis the pelvis was very sexy, but he was pretty much masculine. This is changing, right? So we have these other groups coming over. Anybody recognize this group? The Rolling Stones, yes, the Rolling Stones. It, it, it's the cover of a single, right, of, of the single. I, I believe the single is, Have You Seen Your Mother Lately Standing in the Shadows, the subtext of which is that she's actually a prostitute. <laughs> right, so here the, here the Rolling Stones in drag, in weird World War II nurses' uniforms in a wheelchair. I, <laughs> you know, and ju just a few years later, right, we have early David Bowie, who's completely, I mean, when I show this, this video clip of him to students right there, actually, they all loved later David Bowie when he's sort of like, you know, um, trendy-ish. But they're, they're shocked at, at the sort of pushing, how much he pushes the androgyny in the early, in the early Ziggy Stardust, right? And then the counterculture begins, the counterculture, we could say, you know, grew out of the beatniks in the 50s, but counterculture really begins to change American society and what's expected, right? So I wouldn't say that, you know, Life Magazine and Time Magazine and Newsweek, all of which were great, right, are, are literally like usually a year and a half behind the times, right? So here's a poster in Golden Gate Park from 67, right? Human being with these, you know, bring flowers, incense, feathers, cakes, banners, and flags, bring families, animals, symbols, drums, chimes, and flutes, <laughs> right, in psychedelic colors. Right, and Timothy Leary, the, the high priestess of LSD, will be there, along with Dick Gregory and Jerry Rubin. But I think this is so interesting, the Time Magazine covered, you know, the same year in 67, right? So the hippies, which many people found sort of frightening because they were all having sex and taking drugs and acting out, right? It's called the philosophy of a subculture. Time Magazine, which sort of like, it's okay, there's actually a philosophy behind all of this, right? Um, which is sort of extraordinary when you think about the fact that, you know, World War II ended in 45, this is two years before Stonewall, right? But I mean, the, the changes in American culture are just tremendous. Along with this, and this is actually a picture that was going to be in Life Magazine, but they wouldn't print it. <laughs> you can see why. In 67, right? This is a, a B-in. I used to show this in class and say, I think I dated the man in the middle there. <laughs> then they always ask what his name was. I don't <laughs> right, but, but I mean, this, the notion, right, I mean, America's like, I mean, you know, I just go back for a second, right, people say, oh, something will happen, you know, the queen fought back, it was great, true, right? Except it happens in this, this, this broader context in which so much is happening. Um, This is a cover of Life magazine, right, about communes, right? So it was like, I mean, the fear of like, oh, my daughter's going to meet a hippie downtown and run off to a commune and have free love and sex and get pregnant and do LSD and, you know, Charlie Manson, they'll kill Sharon Tate, and, you know. Um, but here's Life magazine, right? And it says, new ways new way of living confronts the U.S. I mean, completely sort of reasonable. 
as a descriptive. So just like after World War II, we really begin to see these major changes in gender expectations and what people were allowed to do in how sexuality was, I mean, you know, I, I would argue that the soldier and the nurse, the sailor and the nurse kissing in Times Square were shocking for 1945. But this is just, you know, 10 years later, or 20 years later, right? It's a whole new set of expectations being, being um, jumbled up. You know, and also, I think importantly, sexuality is being understood in a new way, and, and, and sexual acts are being understood in a new way. So I think the one major event that I would argue is one of the largest influences on the gay liberation movement, and, and one of the most surprising, and it's actually the invention of the birth control, of the safe, we had birth control pills in the late 30s, but they were actually not very safe. <laughs> um, we hadn't learned everything we need to know about hormones yet. Right, is the invention of the, of the, and marketing of the safe birth control pill. Right, so I think what this signified, right, that if sex without any chance of reproduction is okay with birth control pills, which is any, God, I mean, the, the, the boon to women's lives is unimaginable, that you did not have to worry about getting pregnant, <laughs> right? So if sex without any chance of reproduction is okay, then isn't all sex without even the possibility of reproduction kind of okay too, right? Because the main justification or the main, the main, um, complaint about homosexuality was that homosexuals couldn't, couldn't reproduce, right? Anita Bryant said in the 70s, right, they can't reproduce, so they have to recruit, right? Uh, although Christopher C. the Gay Magazine had a great cartoon with these two people at a booth, and somebody says, well, actually, they can't recruit, so they have to reproduce, <laughs> right? But, but what, in fact, the birth control did was that it took away reproduction from sexuality, and it sort of unintentionally, nobody intended this in the scientist labs, it, it just made it okay just to have sex no matter what sort of sex you wanted to have. Right? Because the, the basic biological fact is that two men can actually not get pregnant if they're having sex and two women cannot get pregnant if they're having sex, right? So here are two pictures of that. And at the same time, right, so this is all happening really in like three years. Same time, the war in Vietnam is happening. And this is the other thing that I think the war in Vietnam is one of the main influences behind the Stonewall riots in all sorts of different ways, because it really was the major political event of the 1960s and 70s, right? An event that actually still with us, as uh, people argue, who fought and who didn't fight in Vietnam. <laughs> um, right, beginning in 1962, uh, John, F. Ken John, F. <laughs> John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, um, sends over advisors to the war pretty slowly and it quickly begins to escalate. It affects everyone and slowly there is widespread resistance to the war, even among the middle class who first sort of supported it, right? Images of horror began, I mean, really, the phrase was that, you know, that in fact television brought the war home, right? I mean, we actually began to see the horrors of what was happening in any war, right? Because actually, we did see the horrors of what was happening during World War II. Not all of them, but we saw some of them in, in like magazines and, and newspapers, though they were heavily censored by the government. Um, but what's coming out in Vietnam were actually horrific to people. Also, we didn't really know where Vietnam was and why we were there exactly. 
Right, so the picture of the, this is 68, right, a year before Stonewall, the My Lai Massacre in, in Vietnam. Here's, you know, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, their first photos of Viet mass shoot slayings, right? It's slayings, I mean, that's like a war crime. That's not like combat, <laughs> right? And I hate sharing this picture, I'll just do it very quickly, right? The horrible picture of the napalm attack on the families and the children. Um, I'm not figuring this because it's sort of upsetting to look at. Um, so for, for a government to function, both in its policies and in keeping with the general cohesion of the country, it has to be trusted, right? Um, right in the early 1960s, Bob Dylan wrote the times they are changing and it was actually like uh, really old hat by the time that the later 60s come. I mean, the times had changed completely, right? And interestingly, the civil rights, so keep Vietnam in mind, I'm gonna to go to the civil rights movement quickly. Civil rights arguments in the 50s were rendered um, as sort of ineffectual, right? Because what's beginning to happen is not like, we shall overcome, we're gonna have a nice peaceful sit-in. Right? We see lots of urban unrest, uh, which actually now in, in black and African, in African and African-American studies, people are calling not riots, but like, in, or an insurrections, right? These, oh, these are Vietnam protests here. Right, nice middle class people, protest, they, they don't trust the government anymore, right? And this is obviously completely compounded in the early 70s by Watergate, when we really couldn't trust the government. It's only that we continued to now. <laughs> right, here's make love, not war. Right, but these are just quickly, these, these are, there's a series of riots that happened from 63 to 69, every single summer that are actually devastating to inner city. I actually went to school in Newark, New Jersey, and my freshman year was like right after the Newark riots in 67. Right, actually I lived in Scotch Plains, which was two towns away from Plainfield where major riots happened in the middle of New Jersey. Right, so literally from 63 to 69, you know, six years, every, every single summer, cities are being burned down. Right, we look at these numbers of who's injured, some people die, people are arrested. I had a student one time saying, well, how, um, I'm curious, of these people arrested or, 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 or uh, restrained or put in jail or, or injured, how many of them were white and how many were black? And I said, well, except for the one white policeman killed in Plainfield, mostly black. <laughs> so all, right, all these numbers are about African-Americans. Right, and these, this, this is York, Pennsylvania. Not a big city. A shot from New York, New Jersey. These are not police, these are actually state troopers. Right, Watts. Looking alarmingly like a scene from Vietnam. <laughs> right, so images of these riots are, are actually often, I have a longer slideshow where I actually show Vietnam riots, Vietnam riots, and it's, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. So during this time, we actually, in 66, we have the formation of the Black Panther Party, right, forms in, uh, to protect black people, mostly black men, against the Oakland police, um, right? They are not violent, except they will use violence to protect themselves. And they really depart from other civil rights movements that are calling for non-violence, non um, and most importantly, right, that actually, just like Harry Hay, 
understood that homosexuals are not guys who had, who had sex with each other, but actually a discrete minority, right? The Black Panthers argued that black people as a whole were an oppressed group who were colonized within America. So they're using colonial theory the way that you would about Algeria or Vietnam or any other colony, right? And the only solution is black economic empowerment, black cultural empowerment, and a strong community that can resist attacks from the outside, right? They also fight hard against the war in Vietnam and understanding that black soldiers were being disproportionately sent there and to there to defend the country. There's a great line in the musical Hair, right? Somebody describes the Vietnam War as that it's the white man is sending the black man to kill the yellow man to protect America, which they sold from the red man. Right, black soldier being dis disproportionately uh, sent over and killed in the name of the country that actually oppresses them. Right, this goes back to the gay men and lesbians saying, oh, "Just I just defeated Hitler. Why, why, why can't I kiss my girlfriend out on the street?" <laughs> right, we have. Uh, Muhammad Ali and his famous line, which I actually have, I've tended in class never not to use the N-word out loud because you can read it. <laughs> Just feels weird to say it out loud, right? And even Time Magazine, again, always a year and a half behind the times, actually has a cover about the black soldier or the Negro soldier, right? And what the Black Panthers discover, right, or, or promote, right, or discover and then promote, right, is that in fact, Oh, and also, right, so these, these are actually protests against Vietnam using, talking about race, right? And what the Black Panthers discover, right, is that actually black power is what they need. You know, meanwhile, the, what we might call equality feminism under Betty Friedan, meaning women should be equal to men, be hired the same and not have to worry about housework. Though Betty Friedan thought you should be able to hire a maid to do the housework when you went out to the office. Uh, in 67, women in New York begin meeting and calling themselves radical feminists. Radical feminists declared that the problem was not inequality in the workplace or women doing too much housework. The problem, not women trapped home, the problem was actually patriarchy, which they described as an ingrained political system in which all men had power, all men as a group, as a class, had power over all women. Right, and many of these women came from the civil rights movement and from, the, from what we call the new left, the anti-war movement, right? Here's the, you'll notice in this picture, they're not burning their bras, they're putting them in a trash barrel. There, there were no bras burned in the early women's movement, it's a myth, <laughs> right? And here's a, this is a Miss America pageant, right? Um, welcome to Miss America cattle auction. Right? Women will not be treated as meat anymore. Right, so you wanna think about what Harry Hayes said, what Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin said, the changes in World War II, the changes that were happening during the counterculture, all take root in these different protest movements, right? They, they coined the phrase, right? This is the symbol, but the, but the phrase is sisterhood is powerful, right? Not unlike black power, <laughs> right? In 69, uh, the Weather Underground or the Democratic Convention in Chicago, right, was called the you know, Days of Rage right, in 68, right? So we're really seeing days of rage in all of these movements that literally, I would argue, is what sparked Stonewall. So this brings me to June of 1969, finally, we're back at the Stonewall Inn, right? So the streets of America were already filled with protests and often violence, right? Police violence against anti-war demonstrations were common. Um, the average person was making connections that were impossible to make a few years 
earlier. Right. And again, I, I, I would really, I know there are other people assassinated before JFK, but I believe JFK was really the beginning of a violent political American culture. Right. People began making connections. Well, if women are oppressed by men, by, by heterosexuality and by men, right, are gay people, are, are gay people then oppressed by straight people, right? So this, this is not, what Harry Hayes said was actually right, that, that gay men and lesbians were a distinct culture. Now people are borrowing from these other movements and saying that, in fact, gay men and lesbians were actually oppressed by a, a political structure, right? I mean, you might call that patriarchy, you may call it heterosexism. Uh, Christopher Isherwood had a phrase that he used, which was the heterosexual dictatorship, which is sort of nice because it actually brings in World War II as well, <laughs> right? So people began asking, if black identity is politically important, what about gay identity, right? If black is beautiful, then, then as Frank Amity said, you know, gay is good, right? If there's black power, then why not gay power? You know, should gay people fight to be part of the political or sexual system? You know, sisterhood is powerful. You know, then Rita Mae Brown, one of the early radical lesbians, right, said, you know, took sisterhood is powerful and, and said, quoting, quoting the Greeks, <laughs> she was a classics, a classics major at NYU, you know, an army of lovers cannot lose. Yeah, you know, I mean this. This is a battle. We're in a fight, and yes, we're all. And, and yes, we're lovers. And yes, an army of lovers cannot lose. So, taking their cue right from the new left, from the Vietnam protests, from Black Power, from drugs, from radical feminism, from sex and rock and roll, right? The people at the Stonewall Inn fought back that night, right? These uh, now, I'm sure. I'm sure many of them had never been to an anti-war rally, or even an S or certainly not to a Students for Democratic Society an SDS meeting. Um, since they were probably mostly white, they were not associated with the Black Panthers, which are pretty much African American <laughs> women and men. Um, they probably most of them probably had never read the Marxist feminist theories of Kate Millett or Shulamith Firestone, <laughs> um, which were really books for you know college-educated people. Um, or not even that, elite college-educated people who like read theory, um, but they were angry, right? And they knew instinctually that these theories were correct, right? Because the great thing about a true theory is that you know it's true without even knowing what it is, because it makes sense, right? I mean, just think of this picture here and think of some of the pictures in the race riots with the police. Right, so this all, all begins to come together, right? In the context, right, of black power, of radical feminism, of the Rolling Stones in drag, of, of the Beatles with their haircuts, right? This all leads up to this. Uh, and and I, I'd argue the birth control pill, right? Because it, people are actually saying, sex without reproduction can happen. Let's, let's just have sex without reproduction no matter who's doing it. Right, so all of these events, the anti-war rallies, the urban insurrections, the assassinations, the Miss America protest, uh, the freedoms promised by hippies and drugs, and uh, promised and often delivered by hippies and drugs, the Beatles haircuts, um, you know, we, and the, because the Beatles, I, I do think the Beatles haircuts are important because the Beatles are saying, we can do whatever we want and still be loved. We can be in the Ed Sullivan show and people love us, right? I mean, the, the, you know, it, different variations because somebody in 
think Time Magazine wrote, that if you were a suburban father, you might let your 15, 18-year-old daughter or 15, 16-year-old daughter date a beetle, but you wouldn't let her near a Rolling Stone because they were actually sexually dangerous, right? So the Beatles, which was sort of true, I mean, even though, given the fact that they've done more drugs collectively than anybody in the entire world, they're still performing <laughs> now. Um, Right, birth control pills said just do it, you know, and the in-your-face militancy of the Black Panthers all go into making Stonewall, right? So, I mean, I, I think it's great to say Stonewall happened and let's all celebrate these people who did it, right? But it didn't happen out of nowhere. Stonewall would not have happened without all of these other things going on, and Stonewall was in many ways the logical conclusion to all of them. Right, this is a this is actually an image from a little bit later, from the 80s, I think, but it captures <laughs> the raised fist notion of it, right? So probably um, none of the people fighting there were involved in these movements. Um, the people who founded the Gay Liberation Front uh, and were, for the most part, um, veterans of the civil rights movements and of, the, and of radical feminism of the new left and students for democratic society and actually had been attending anti-war demonstrations for the last six years before they formed the Gay Liberation Front. When Gay Liberation Front was formed, they were not in favor of gay rights or same-sex marriage. In fact, they were probably against all marriage <laughs> anyway. Um, or they didn't advocate for anti-discrimination laws or electing gay people uh, back then it was radical to say a gay person should be on the city council, and now we have a gay person running for president. So things have changed. Um, they, 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 what, what they wanted were rights for all people, and they wanted to change the world, right? They wanted to stop the war in Vietnam, they wanted to stop racism, they, wanted, they actually supported the Black Panthers, they actually wanted to stop the oppression of women, they wanted to stop police violence, they wanted to dismantle the military, they wanted to free up gender roles. They wanted to create gay communities that were independent, not unlike the, the Black Panthers. Right, so here just we have some quick posters from the early, this is 73, four years after summer, right? Gay love for the Vietnamese, right? So it, it's all intertwined, right? Here are people wanting to end the war in Vietnam. Gay Liberation Day parades. Right, and I think a final image, which is actually on the poster, right? which sort of sums up that, that, that moment, right? And, and since that moment, right, we've actually had many of the groups that were gay rights groups, which, which are great. I'm, I'm not against gay rights at all. But the moment in 69 is actually about gay liberation that comes out of all these other movements, right? And it, with this is gay power, black power, women power, student power, all power to the people. So that's it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming.